The Sign Out Podcast has partnered with Outdoor by Four to bring you this conversation. Welcome to the Sign Out Podcast. Here we interview individuals who are pursuing their passion and who want to share that story. Mostly Western China. It was there that I kind of realized what adventure is and what it means, something that was tied to me as an individual. I'm like, there are people riding around this planet on motorcycles having near mythological experiences. And then some weird stuff happens. And this is where you start to understand that the world is magic. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Sign Out Podcast. Another great conversation we have in store for you today. I'm really excited to talk to Carl Parker, who is the publisher of ADV Moto Magazine. If you've listened to our podcast a few times, you know that we've touched on the area of motorcycles um, from interviewing a couple of different guys that like to ride. But today we have a definite enthusiast who has put his life around publishing a wonderful magazine and just being an overall lover of motorcycles in general. Carl, thanks for joining the podcast. Oh, thanks very much uh, for having me on. Uh, Dan or Daniel, which one do you prefer? I do go by Daniel. Daniel. Okay. All right, Daniel. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, thanks very much. I've been checking out some of your, some of your uh, back back podcast and this is this is an awesome show again thanks for having me on well i'm excited i always enjoy talking anything motorcycles in general um but i'm really interested you know overall in your story carl and you know i'm introducing you as the publisher of adv moto but i know that there's a, a story that gets us all the way there so first i just want to learn a little bit more about you kind of where you grew up and what was your early childhood like when it came to outdoor exploration or you know, what got you interested in being outdoors? Well, well, straight up, I mean, you know, I grew up in basically one of the suburbs of Washington, D.C., you know, like over in Arlington. So, you know, uh, you know, my parents did like to take us fishing and I believe we went camping a few times, you know, like when I was younger. But I've always had an appreciation for outdoors. And uh, largely as a child of the 80s, you know, we weren't we weren't chained to the TV screens like the kids are now. So, you know, like everybody else. When you got home from school, there was no reason to stay at home. You you straight up went back out on your bicycles or with your friends and you went down to the park and you know you you were always out causing causing trouble with your posse. So, you know, that was that was part of it, but the motorcycling side of it um and the adventure side of it really came when a friend of mine uh had an old 1982 Honda Magna that was not working it. It it needed a clutch replacement. The the master cylinder was leaking. Anyway, it had a whole bunch of things that needed to go wrong with it. And I was driving, you know, sporty cars at the time. I had a job um, as a digital um, kind of like network technician. And uh, when he gave me that old bike, man, it was like there was a fork in the road. <laughs> and and uh, uh, I went the way less traveled and I've never looked back sent because choosing to ride a motorcycle can be for some people some of the most or one of the most transformative decisions you ever made or you can make in your entire life right so um you know and then from there from the adventure aspect of it um you know uh, i toured around the united states on a bandit 1200 so i was doing sport touring um and uh, that was about a month trip uh ended up getting a a uh i uh getting um uh uh a 1000 mile day in you know uh wow, for that is, that's a long day yeah for my iron butt i think that's the saddle sore 1000 
Right. Um, and uh, I mean, and being able to ride into a sunrise is interesting. So that one is uh, that one's long. But then I ended up traveling overseas and living and working in Southwest China for five years. And there um, I got into basically riding local bikes around Tibet, Xinjiang, uh, you know, some of those areas out there, uh, Qinghai, mostly Western China. And um, it was there that I kind of realized what adventure is and what it means and that it wasn't, you know, this type of bike or that type of bike. But adventure was something that was, you know, tied to me as an as, as an individual and it's tied to all of us as individuals uh, and, you know, being able to find what helps bring that out in all of us in our own way is like, what, what what kind of bikes were you riding over there well when i first got over there i had displacement disbelief right so i was coming from a band at 1200 which i loved and you know i was still in that mindset oh man and you know if it's not a leader i don't know if i can tour on it but actually once you get overseas it becomes a liability so because they're they're heavier you can't go that fast anyway the roads are bad and you can't get repaired, you know, like, like, like if I needed a new carburetor or a new part for a carb or even a wheel, there's no way I could get it. So if you're riding in a lot of places overseas, right, you know, riding the motorcycles that are indigenous to the area is it's one is it's cost affordable. But two, as long as you're willing to slow it down and you can give yourself time, it's by far the best way to explore that region of of the world. Uh, they're 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 lighter. The parts are everywhere. The parts are dirt cheap because they're small. They tend to get you know uh, 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 really really low maintenance because also because they're light. You don't have as much chain wear. You don't have as much tire wear. You don't have as much brake wear. And you know, but the downside of it is, I'm going up four or five thousand meter passes um, at fifteen miles an hour full throttle with luggage and camera gear and. All you're doing to yourself is you're telling yourself, hey, hey, you know, this is faster than walking. This is faster than walking. That's like literally. And then some weird stuff happens. And this is where you start to understand that the world is magic. As soon as you take yourself outside, you know, so I went into this pass in Tibet and they have all these flags up there. And I would sometimes stop and I would smoke a cigarette and I would watch compression clouds form over the mountains. And uh, this old guy came from behind nowhere. And so I would usually carry, you know, these like a little flask of like whiskey. And that's how you would kind of, you know, you would pass out a cigarette, share a cigarette, and then you would, you know, have have, have, a, have a swig, right? And so we do that and we talk for, you know, a few minutes in my broken Chinese. And then I simply put it off down, down the pass into the valley and then up to the next pass, which was not that far. And when I got there, I did the same thing. I stopped and I, you know, took a break. And I watched the clouds form over the mountains. And the same dude came out from behind a different rock. And the dude is walking. He obviously knew a faster way to get there than me. But it blew, it blew my mind. It absolutely blew. I mean, still to this day, I can't explain how this stuff happens. Sometimes you even think it's a mirage of your mind or something like that. It's like, it's like you had a miracle walker behind you. Oh my gosh, it was just absolutely crazy. And then you get all these different change in perspectives. You know, I'm out there on a gas-powered motorcycle and I think I'm badass. Also up in the mountains, I think this was Qinghai. And, uh, you know, same thing, I'm just stopped. And when you're on the road in, in foreign countries and you see people that are coming from, you know, from the opposite direction, you, you, it's important to stop and ask them what the road conditions are. 
because the cartographic histories of a lot of countries are not as good as they are in a lot of the Western countries. So you might see a line on a piece of paper, but that doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything. So if you see someone coming the opposite, it's, it's worth waving them down and, and stopping and asking. Well, you know, I think I'm all badass. I'm in my 20s and stuff and whatever, and I'm doing all this stuff. And this old guy comes up on a bicycle. And it's this old German guy. He was like close to 70 years old. And he said he's been riding around the world on a bicycle for like six or seven years. I mean, this dude was fit. Yeah. And he was sharp. And he was sharp up here mentally. And I'm like, wow, man. Bicycle pound for pound is the most elegant form of transportation. I mean, I love motorcycles because I love, you know, the, the power uh, and the efficiency of it. But bicycles pound for pound uh, are the most elegant form of mechanized transportation for human beings. And uh, that gave me some new perspective too. a lot of respect for that guy and the people that commit to them, you know, to what they love like that. It's otherworldly for most of us. So let me ask you this question, because even these stories for the average person are pretty wild. I mean, one, you went to a foreign country, two, you're going back roads in foreign countries. Where did you get that sense of adventure and the confidence to really have that sense of adventure and just like, I'm going to push on and go try this? Uh, man, that's a really good question. Well, one of the reasons that I went to China was because I'm half Chinese. So my father was in the Navy. Uh, here and my grandfather was in the Air Force here, and uh, he met my mother in Malaysia, and uh, and so I've always had and so while I'd been back to Singapore, Malaysia, where my Asian you know part of the family is, I'd never really spent any time in China. And China felt it's a very large culture. It's very you know it's a very important culture historically, uh, and of course economically now. Um, but at the time, I it was it was really just more about exploring it. But the thing that really got me was this: there was um, there was uh, an older expat over there, uh, an Australian named Charles, and he had been driving those in like in China, they're called bian bao chus. I don't know, but it's those little mini like it's the bread loaf vans. Mm -hmm. you know what I'm talking about, it's yeah. those it's those little tiny vans that's got the engine underneath the driver's seat. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the, the real type, they're, they're awesome out there. They got these little like 12 inch wheels. And stuff like that. Anyway, he was driving there. It was my first couple months there. And he took uh, myself and I think one other teacher and his girlfriend out on a out on just a drive in the nearby Tibetan mountains, and it blew my mind what was not even a day away from the university that I was teaching at, which was in Chengdu. And uh, then I saw these people riding motorcycles out there, and I was like, "Well, that's pretty much it." I was like, "Yeah," I was like, "I don't care what kind of bike I'm on, I don't care, I don't care what." And then the other thing too was. I saw people like couples easily in their 30s, 40s, and 50s traveling the mountain roads, which are all broken up in some very high altitude, two up on scooters. And, you know, 70, 90, 125 cc scooters. And uh, they were carrying nothing more than a plastic bag with some, with a, with a change of clothes and some like these, these pan fried breads and stuff in the back. And, you know, and I'm like, you know, and for me, from the Western perspective, it's like, man, you got to have these hard cases and you got to have all this and you got to have all that. And now I'm looking at these like, man, these people are going through like places where there's snowstorms in the summer. And they're just doing it, you know, like a business clothes with like black leather shoes. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, yo, my, my, I need to readjust. I need this to readjust. 
they set the example for you, right? They set like, they're like, you're looking at it and you say, well, if they can do that. Surely I can go out there and have as much fun as them, right? Yeah. And that unlocked everything. You know, I think now people would call it minimalist writing or kind of whatever. And so I can pack real tight now. You know what I mean? <laughs> it, yeah. And that skill and that skill never leaves you. What's, you know what's, what I mean? what's minimalist to us over here in the States is just everyday world for those people out there. They're like, that's just how you travel. Yeah. Actually, we don't even we don't even know how to do minimalist like I mean it's it, it's actually hard for someone here to wrap our heads around it unless we've really pushed ourselves right to that. So again, right? Like riding local bikes is important because then you're not carrying a bunch of spare parts with you. All you know, all the bikes are like white box bikes anyway. This carburetor will fit on 50 different types of bikes. Right. You know what I'm saying? All that kind of stuff. Steel frames can be welded. And I had plenty of frame welding because initially I was carrying too much weight. So the, the rear subframes were snapping on my bikes. And so they were inserting rebar and they were welding the stuff up. And, and you know, and I, I have plenty of photos of this, right? So, you know, uh, uh, I got to the point, and especially if you're carrying camera gear. And, and back then it wasn't GoPros. We didn't have these little tiny miracles. So you're talking about like 2003, so we're talking about 20 years ago. We didn't have GoPros, right? It was still, you know, DSLRs, full-size lenses, you know, and you know, and all this kind of stuff. We didn't have the, you know, zoom in and a cell phone kind of thing. It did not exist. You know, you said so, something. I was going to jump in. You said something else that I think is interesting for the listeners. As you said, I didn't realize what was out there an hour away. And the reason I bring that up is because I think where each of us are sitting in our living room there probably is something really unique an hour from where we are that we haven't explored. And that's not just motorcycles in general. I know if I go an hour west from here, I can be in a town whose pace of life is completely different than what I live in. And it is like going to another country. And in fact, you'll the 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 way the town was founded and the immigration that founded that town is so much different than what I have. And I I think man that's not just motorcycles just take that hour and go find another place 100 percent. it doesn't matter what vehicle you're on i don't care if you're walking you can go there and find some place that you've never been before and if you give yourself some time and patience talk to some people just just talk to some people buy some gas eat a sandwich at their local store, buy a trinket, a fridge magnet, whatever. Postcard, if they still, it, it doesn't matter. Just spend time there, contribute to the, you know, to, to, to the scene there. And what you may get, and I guess everybody's different about this, because I really care about this stuff, but I think maybe some people, it might not be as important. But what you can take away from them about learning what's in your backyard, mm -hmm. that, that may have been there your whole life, mm -hmm. but you never put yourself in the right mindset to say, I'm going to go find it. Right. And that's about as convenient as it gets. I mean, yeah. that's, you know, you know, you know what I mean? Uh, that by itself, you are hundred percent correct. Uh, putting yourself in the right mindset to say, I'm going to pick a spot on the map. I've never been an hour away and I'm going to go see what's there and I'm going to get the most out of whatever I experience. That's a yeah, wonderful go way. Find, go find a local restaurant and you'll always find a great conversation there. And, and most likely you'll find some pretty good food and then you're supporting the local economy there. But I think that's so that's so interesting. 
So here you, you know, that, that's pretty big though for you to move to China. You do some, you know, you get your feet underneath you when it comes to motorcycling through a ton of experience, right? You start on this street bike, you get over to, you know, now doing some pretty impressive mountain passes in China. But what are those next few years as you come back from that? What are those next few years look like when it comes to building your motorcycle skills or what your next interests are? Oh, yeah, sure. Well, I mean, so the five years in China and also in other places, too, I also had the experience to go travel in India, where I met another uh, who I believe is a notable writer. His name is Gaurav Jani. He was he was one of the first first people I think to solo and record a film about adventure motorcycling, right? And and his first one is called Riding Solo to the Top of the World. Okay, and uh, and uh, I met him I think online. It was through forums, and he he basically inspired me to do my own film which is, as far as I know, the second film ever done about, which was solo written and solo recorded, okay, about motorcycling on Western China. And mine is called The Return, Riding Western China. Um, so in the process of doing this, I also started working with some magazines, you know, providing photos and some stories to some local expat magazines, uh, you know, in China and some other European magazines too as well. Um, when I came back to the United States, okay, I was married. Right. And I knew that it was not going to be the same. I simply can't ride off to Tibet four hours away from Virginia. That isn't just not happening. I mean, it's, it's, not, it's, not, it's a different scene. You have to adapt. But I had this movie that I just put out on DVD and I was trying to hustle this out. So, um, you know, so I talked with a bunch of the of the mainstream titles at the time. I mean, that was when Dirt Rider was still around. Cycle World is still around in print. I mean, that was back when the thing was still in print. And um, and I was not happy with a lot of what the, I had received there in terms of in terms of what they thought were viable motorcycle stories. I felt like, and again, so this is around 2008. So the economy had gone to the poopers. Yep. A lot of the titles had lost their advertising, right? And so what what I found they did was they kind of circled up the wagons. And they relied on staff writers a lot for the content. And, and you know, some of them pulled out of print when digital only. They tried that, came back, so on and so forth. But the content became homogenized in a certain sense. You know, two-stroke versus four-stroke, two-stroke versus four-stroke, two-stroke versus four-stroke every year. And then, and, then, and then I was just like, man, I can't believe it. I said, there are, you know, and then from forums and stuff, I'm like, there are people riding around this planet on motorcycles having near mythological experiences and no one thinks that's an interesting story you know, what I mean? you know what I mean? it was like it 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 blew my mind it blew my mind so then i was doing some free work for the previous publisher of adv moto at that time it was called adventure motorcycle and before that it was called dual sport news so adv moto is the oldest continuous publication niche topic in the world at least in the english language uh about adventure motorcycling so uh so i was working for the previous publisher who was based out of ojai california toby for about a year year and a half i think and for nothing i you know i knew that it was it was it was having hard times like all the other titles and i was you know i was not trying to get any money out of this i just wanted experience and to understand more of what this was like in the u.s what the media scene was like in the u.s and at this time you're just working a 
normal full-time job on top of that and right yeah that's correct okay yeah yeah yeah, that's, yeah that, that's correct so uh so when i came back i was with my family and we're in the dc area and my family had a had a contract with the government so i was the operations manager for uh for uh for a contract with one of the government agencies during the time and that that, that that I mean that was good you know like I can't complain about that we did our best and that's another story but anyway so uh so uh you know time time went by and after a little while um you know uh adventure motorcycle needed to change hands and nobody wanted to buy it nobody wanted to buy adventuremotorcycle.com or dualsportnews.com they didn't want to pick up the title even though it was old and it was clearly something that had potential I knew that this had potential because the rest of the world had adventure motorcycling going on, even though we didn't here in North America. I mean, you know, there's a whole ton of bikes, right? So after like 1992, I have this thing where I call it, it, it was the, it was the extinction comet, like the dinosaurs, you know, kind of thing. Something happened in 1992 and we lost a lot of the adventure dual sport bikes, like the Transalps that continued to be developed overseas that they got everywhere asia europe uh, australia they got these bikes and we didn't which is another different industry story but uh you know and when when it was time for this thing to change hands it was very stressful for both myself and 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 the previous publisher toby um but it changed hands and uh uh it was it it went to digital only for a while then i made a very difficult decision to bring it back into print and rebrand it and that was in 2010. And, uh, you know, we've just been rocking ever since, you know, trying to keep the idea of adventure from being a fad. We want it to be a trend. You know, we want, we want the idea of adventure to integrate with motorcycling on as many different levels as possible across the whole spectrum of people that might be interested in exploring the world on two wheels on whatever version of two wheels you want. I don't care. Right. I think that's, that's important to talk about because, you know, if I go down to my, my local motorcycle shop, I mean, the main bikes on the floor are going to be some really big ADV bikes. Um, And you might see a dual sport that's there, but it's not, again, we're, we're back to, well, do I have to go buy the 13 to $23,000 BMW KTM Honda Africa Twin, or can I go get the, you know, just the KLX 300 Kawasaki and take off, right? Sure, yeah. Well, my piece of advice on that is buy the best that you can afford for the type of riding that you think you're going to be doing. The same is true with cars, yeah. you know? So so with, with, with four-wheeled vehicles, right, uh, you know, you might be able to rally a Corolla. <laughs> yeah. I, I know people have done it right <laughs> but 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 you know that might not be what you what you choose although i do want to do the alcan sometime with my family i think that would be that that would be awesome i, I would love to do that either on a bike or in a truck or an suv or something i think that that would be awesome you know but on a motorcycle it's important for everybody to know that almost any bike can do some limited off-road riding, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I mean, as long as it's not a full raked out custom chopper with, with, you know, with, with, with death spike handlebar grips or, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like almost any, any standard bike you buy can do off, can do some minimal off-roading, especially if you have the right tires, right? right. The main thing is, I mean, there, there are guys that have been around the world on, on R1s, 
Wow. On, yeah, on like straight up sport bikes. I mean, you know, and they're crossing rivers on sport bikes. And stuff. So it's like, so it's like anything that you can do. But if you can get an old Nighthawk 250, that's you know something that will never die for a thousand dollars or fifteen hundred dollars. Throw some two hundred dollars saddlebags on the back of that thing, and just have at it. And go, just go, just go, just go, just you know. I mean, again, you know, it's part of that kind of what we were talking about shortly about about media has a habit of crystallizing, you know, things, you know, saying this is what adventure is, you know, or this is what racing is. You know, or this is what motocross, or this is what off-roading is. You know, you got to have this, you got to have that. And some of this stuff does help, and there's no question about it. You know, but for people that are just starting out, I don't even know if you understand, or if, or if someone can easily understand why these things are helpful, or why these things are necessary, unless, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They've had a failure or something, it's like, now I know, you know, now I know why I don't need, you know, n- now I know why I can't sag my luggage on my exhaust. Right. <laughs> you know, you know, you know, you know, you know what I mean? Now I know why I can't put vinyl on a, on a 300 degree exhaust pipe and catch on fire or, you know what I'm saying? Like, right. yeah, you know, like, like, like a lot of this stuff. Yes. It's cool to have it. And I'm not saying to anyone don't have it. If you can afford it, do it. But just what I'm saying is whether it's two wheels or four wheels, just please know that the spirit of adventure is in your heart. It's not in the vehicle that you're driving or riding. Right. And so in, in at ADV Moto, is that kind of the heart of y'all's magazine is, is trying to publish the content that's all about adventure. Now, obviously, you're going to talk about products in there and, and um, you know, you want to be able to review things and, sure. and talk about bikes because people do want to read about, well, why, why would I purchase this Suzuki or this Kawasaki or this Honda? But in the end, is your your heart though? Is that how do I get people to read the magazine about adventure? Find their piece to get them further out. Yeah, well, you have to have a spectrum of different content from different yeah. people. So right. you can't just have staff writing dominating all of your issues every month or every for us it's every two months is when our issues come out. But then we also go online too as well, right? But but you but you can't have the same stories from the same people all the time for an extended period of time. I mean, if you want to run, you know, a a two-part story and then some web sequels or something, okay, that's fine. But that that writer shouldn't be showing up in every issue, you know, for features for, for three or four or five years at a time because, you know, it's like the same thing with social media content, right? It's like this. If you want to make good content, it's a real work. You have to put, you know, creative powers into it you have to have some ingenuity you have to have imagination to think up topics that people want to you know listen to in this case or or look at or watch or read or whatever it is but the fact is is the amount of work that someone can do on that is finite so for a social media channel to expect someone to crank out on a daily basis quality content sometimes even you know multiple times a day quality content unique content to meet that algorithm, right, in order for them to trend or whatever, what happens is a lot of them end up burning out. And so you see that. And then because social media is largely attached to individual personalities, which is a, which is a problem organizations face, okay? Like if you're an established organization, right, 
not having an attached person at like a, like an individual face that represents that brand is difficult in the social media realm. Okay. But if you try to change off and say, oh, well, here's someone that's coming in to help, your audience doesn't or they 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 may not react to that to that new face well. Right. So now what are you left with? You, you know, you have you have spent a year or two or three or four years, whatever, expunging whatever creative ideas you can. You've given it all. You've done video editing. You've you've gotten in front of people. You've paid to travel around. You've, you know, like you've done all this other kinds of stuff. And then only a tiny, tiny percentage of the ones that started years ago when the algorithms were more friendly, you know, are are still up high enough with enough subscribers that they can ride the way. But if you're coming at it right now and you're starting at something right now, man, it's it's very difficult. Well, you've got, I mean, you, you've got years now under your belt with this magazine. I mean, it's pretty impressive to have it as long as you have and keep it going. That's been hard work. It's a miracle. And, you know, and it's not just me, you know, like it's not just me, you know, we are family owned. So, you know, my wife is into it too, as well. Uh, you know, if you write a customer service email, she probably answers, uh, you know, we have a great, uh, a team of ladies that do layout from Philadelphia. And, you know, we have a team of editors there. Uh, you know, it's Christian. He's, he's local here in Maryland, Paul Smith. He, you know, he's all over the place, but he's usually in California. <laughs> I mean, that dude got restless feet. Um, you know, I mean, uh, it's just, it is a real team effort and everyone does it. And it's not because we're, like I said, it's not because we could get paid a lot, but because we're all passionate about it and we want to have a positive impact on this community. And I was, I was just going to ask about the importance. And I think this goes beyond just talking about a magazine, the importance of the importance of finding that passion and pursuing that, like the sign out podcast, part of that is pursuing your passion. And right. so we, we were, we're looking for those interviews of people. And if you're starting a magazine in the two thousands, you have a passion for it because that isn't, and granted this magazine, you were, you were taking it over, but it was, not in the perfect place. Like you said, people didn't want to buy it. And you, so you have to have that passion for whatever you're going to do to really make it work and to ride the ebbs and flows. Cause I'm sure you have stories of being in the Valley and I'm sure you have those mountaintop stories as well. Yeah. Well, who's it? One of my favorite philosophers. And I use this a lot. Friedrich Nietzsche said, if you want to move mountains, you must also move great valleys. And so you have to be prepared for that for the highs and the lows, especially if you're doing something that doesn't come from a formula, especially if you're doing something that that can't be popped out of a can or a template, you know, you will face challenges that no one will have an answer for and give it to you. You will, you know, you will have to dig deep. You might have to learn new skills. You might have to do all this stuff. And it's going to be a tremendous, a tremendous challenge, uh, you know. Uh, not unlike any other kind of challenges someone may, you know, uh, undertake in their life. So, you know, uh, adventure. Uh, having a family is an adventure. Yes. Starting starting your own business is an adventure. You know, people think, oh, man, you know, I, you know, I just got a family. And, you know, well, it's like, well, you've been sweating it to have that family. And, you know, every time a child is born, there is a tremendous amount of uncertainty. Family roles change overnight responsibilities you hope they're healthy it's a it's it's a huge undertaking right. it's a huge it's a huge undertaking you know 
And then you get to experience the rewards though of that work, right? It's but it's yeah, and that's exactly the same as you know, embarking on your own trip to discover the world or you know, or 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 start your own bumper company or 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 whatever, you know what I mean? These like in this case, it's the ADV Moto, right? If you equate a brand or something that is created like this, that you that you grow and you, and you nourish over a decade plus, you know, as kind of a kind of a baby or a child in a way, it has its own life, <clears throat> you know. And I don't want to be like, oh, you know, Carl is ADV Moto. It's not, you know, like it shouldn't be Carl is ADV Moto. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I know that. Well, and, and, right, it, and it makes me think about, and, and I like that perspective because for you to be even more successful and for ADV Moto to be bigger is you need those passionate enthusiasts. You need one, you need people to provide that passionate content. You need the passionate motorcycle riders who find your website. And then like, for me, I want that tactile piece of magazine in my hand. Like I want yeah. that. But then you need that. So the passion of everyone and for it to be even less about you and more about everyone else will then be your benefit because it grows. That's right. Because it's not about me. And it's, again, it's no different than having a business or having a kid. It's right. not about you. Now you have to invest yourself in something else other than yourself. And yes, if you're single and young and you're looking at it, it's like, oh man, why would I want to do that? Why would I want to do that? And it's like looking up a mountain that you have to climb. And it's just like, look at all these difficulties. And it's like, you can stay here if you want, but I'm not going to be here when the flood comes. Right. <laughs> you, know, you know what I'm saying? You, you yes. know what I'm saying? You know so what I'm saying? I, have a, I have a kind of a side story that kind of sure. goes into that. There's a the, the tallest mountain in Texas is about 9,800 feet. It's kind of surprising. It's on the Texaco, Texas, New Mexico border. It's called Guadalupe Peak. And I've climbed it twice. And it's a pretty, it's a six to eight hour adventure to get up and back down. But when I climb it, um, I once I was my first time, the second time I let a group of guys is I made us get there about 430 in the morning. Because you can't see at all at that point what you're about to do. All it is is I'm like, guys, just follow me. Because the first mile is just a switch back up the mountain. And it's like giant stairs for the next wow. 45 minutes. And your lungs are burning. And so what happens is, is you walk for about two to two and a half hours. And you have no concept of where you are. You know you've gone up, but you have no concept. And finally, that sun comes up and you get around this one area of the mountain and you're still not to the top. But then you can see, oh, wow, I can see my car way down there. And what's interesting is I think if I'd have shown up to the parking lot at 7 a.m. Hmm. and then they have to look at that mountain, they're like, "Ooh, I'm not sure I want to climb that mountain today. But when they don't really know exactly what's coming, you get them up there. And then they're like, man, I'm ready to get to the top now. And the funny thing about climbing mountains, hiking them, going down is just as hard. I mean, it's it's a ton of effort just to even go down. So I say all that to say, you know, it's sometimes you can't see what's in front of you and you just have to take one step at a time. And then you get to experience, man, that was hard. But boy, look at this view I have from the top. 
Yeah. The funny thing there, the first time I climbed the mountain is the clouds came in and when we got to the top, we couldn't see anything. Literally in the clouds. We had to hike down a mile and then you under the cloud and you could see for miles. I was like, oh man, that's kind of a, but it's a cool experience because now my story is I have climbed the mountain and I was in the clouds in the whipping wind, just hanging on to the mountaintop. And then we, then we walked down to this piece below the mountains. So in in the next group of guys that I take up there, it'll be the same thing. I was like, we will start at five in the morning and you won't be able to say anything until about 7 a.m. Then you'll realize you're halfway up. Absolutely. And you know, that, that highlights and, you know, uh, a point, which is, uh, it's important to be able to focus on your goals, but you also need to be able to focus on what you're experiencing right now. You know, it's, you know, it's, uh, you know, you have to be able to, to swim in it to a certain extent to get the most out of it. And it's, and it's, and it's hard to do. I think, um, there was a line from a Bruce Lee movie and and he said, it's like a finger pointing away to the moon. He's like, don't concentrate on the finger or you will miss all of that heavenly glory. Right. Right. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? And to me, to me, that's like, don't worry about how far away you are. Don't worry about whether or not you have the right gear or the right, this or the right, that, you know what I mean? To, you know, you know, focus on this, focus on this picture you know, where, where you are, you know, and at this point, we're starting to reach semantic, um, horizons, like limits, you know what I mean? Like we're, we're getting pretty, pretty deep in the philosophical experiential weeds here, but you know what I mean? But, but I think a lot of us conscientious, conscientiously or not, we find peace in those moments where you come down below those clouds and you know, and and sometimes those clouds are like lines. It's like it's like getting underneath the curtain or something like that. Right. It's like, you know, and now everything is clear. And you know what I mean? And if you came back the next day, it might be the exact opposite. Right. Right. But whatever it is that you experienced on that day, and that on that, you know, when when you were on that trail on that day, there is a certain magic of whatever it happened to be. And yes. what can you know, and you know, and what what do you take away from that, from your experience? Absolutely. That's very well said, Carl. So let's let's jump back a little bit back into some motorcycle stuff, though, because, you know, as somebody who is deep into what's going on in the motorcycle world, and especially this niche niche of, you know, ADV, dual sport, what, what do you see? Where is the industry today and where do you see it going? Like, what are things that you are looking forward to as a publisher of a magazine? Um, and for the industry itself. Okay. Well, for one, uh, and this is not just for ADV Moto, but all, let's say, quote unquote, traditional media. I hope that more and more people come out and support traditional media. And I don't just mean from the readership standpoint, but I mean from the industry standpoint too, as well. Um, a lot of us that are still in this, that have managed to survive this, have been dedicated to the community for a decade plus some two or three decades and to see a lot of them where they are now to me is almost disrespectful some of them are still trying to carry a torch but uh you know but there are some you know some 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 parties out there that still remain supportive and and we love that anyone you see in our magazine or anyone else's magazine you'll see them all the same like they're there for everything 
and that is fantastic because they understand what our job is and you know what we do um so one is i would like to see some of some of that improve so that we can do what we want to do better and that's very important because we care about the community we we want to run events we want to get people together right so that's important it's not just adv moto i'm I'm not saying that just for adv moto okay um but industry-wise um you know frank and i uh you know which is how we met right frank Ledwell. um he publisher uh of, publisher of outdoor by four that's another, it, that's, great, another great adventure magazine abs- absolutely absolutely um and i hope he has a chance to pop in here but um but uh you know we we met in india on the royal enfield uh new himalayan 450 trip and uh and we just hit it off but uh that bike underscores i think what is a very important segment in adventure motorcycling and uh you know so for years we had a a glut of of bikes that have been around for a long time like the dr650s the drz's um the klrs i mean these bikes have paid for their tooling many times over um you know but they were kind of mainstays and staples of the industry and they kind of kept it floating you know after after the comet of 92 right they, they kind of they were the survivors and the alligators and stuff and they you know and they and they kept us populated with life for right. for 20 30 years or whatever right so uh but but now we have this huge variety so what came first uh you know and also BMW played a huge part in 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 establishing this in the United States they'd already been established elsewhere but you know, but the but the GS line played a huge part in also establishing this, uh, you know, uh, earlier on, let's say like 10 years ago, right, in the United States. And right. since then, uh, globally, it's it's also taken off, but especially in the United States. So we saw large bikes come in, you know, leader plus bikes. Then we saw, you know, with Honda and stuff, some of the smaller bikes, 125s, 250s, 300s right uh klx 300 250s all these you know all cool you know and they were getting some updates um now in the past four or five years we've been seeing the mid-size 7 800 900 cc but now finally finally after 12 13 14 15 years of beating mid and bit mid and small displacement you know uh 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 songs out on chopsticks and pans we're seeing we're seeing these 450s come in and the reason why the 450s and the 500s are important to us as an industry as well as adv in general and dual sporting in general is because 450 is kind of a magic size where the bike is not too large or too heavy for most new or experienced riders to handle they're also not crazy expensive as a you know as a new rider to purchase right so that new himalayan 450 right i think it's, it's going to be coming in under $7000 right and I, I think they're still saying 3 year warranties on that stuff and i mean it's just it's a fantastic deal and it's a fully modern bike with a circular tft display and i mean it, it awesome suspension off the showroom floor you know for most riders um, you know, but then there are some other brands. Uh, was it CF CF Moto? I think is going to be coming out with another 450. Triumph brought out a bunch of uh, a couple 400 scramblers, and you know, I went on a junket uh, for the Tiger 1200 several years ago. I think it was in Spain, and you know, I was driving back with the guy who was the U.S. rep 
And I said, yo, you know, do you think Triumph would ever offer four or 500 CC bikes just to kind of, you know, give an entry point into the brand? And I was laughed at. Oh, man. I mean, I don't know, you know, I don't know if he knew him, but I was laughed. Now, this was many years ago, right? So the philosophy of, of the company, I think, was different back then, right? But now what do we have? 400cc triumphs that are a hot topic and i tell you i want to ride those triumphs yeah i you know what the, I mean? the interesting part about that is that barrier to entry so if i go look at a bmw 1200 a honda africa twin a ktm 1290 and i've ridden two of those bikes they're huge they're like some like they're intimidating to get up on and then like I'm going to take that and put that on gravel. And then am I going to, I mean, it's intimidating, but if I jump on a Honda CRF 450, yeah, it's kind of tall, but I can just jump on it and go. Yeah. Go. So, yeah. Yeah. Now I don't know how tall you are, but uh, you know, but if you're, if you're really, if you're over six, two or six feet, I'm even, five eleven, man, five eleven. Okay. So you're, so you're, so you're right around six, those bikes are still tiptoeing a little bit. Yes. Um, yeah, you know, but they are doable. Uh, however, I would say that if you're doing extreme trail riding, those are perfect bikes. Yes. But if you just want to hit up gravel and stuff, you don't need all that suspension. You don't need, you know, all right. that. You, you you can find all kinds of other bikes that'll work. Yeah, yeah. Well, it looks like we got our Christmas wish. We're here. There he is. We did. So, <laughs> hey, the audience, let me introduce Frank Ledwell, who is the publisher of Outdoor by Four. If you've been listening to podcasts for the past 18 months you'll know that they're the title sponsor of the sign out podcast as well and um our goal was to get both these guys on here because we still have a couple more stories to tell and we haven't talked too much about you frank at this point but welcome to the show <laughs> well thank you daniel i appreciate it carl it's a pleasure to finally see you again nice to see you frank hey frank i was just telling everybody all kinds of salacious details about your life well uh, yeah, i, I <laughs> I'm not going to say uh, that anything you've said is either correct or incorrect. I'm going to plead the fifth. I confirm or deny nothing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, Frank, th this is a gr this is actually a perfect segue because we have just we just talked about um, Carl did a really good uh, response about kind of the future of dual sport and the need for that 450 size bike to come in here. Mm -hmm. But the important thing I want to hit is. You guys just took an amazing trip, I would say a trip of a lifetime, to be able to go ride some bikes. So I think it'd be perfect for you just to give some background on how y'all met on that trip and what that trip was. And let's just tell a few stories about that. Oh, wow. That was, well, so you, you I mean, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, for me, and I think Carl would agree, it was it was definitely um, the, the trip of a lifetime, uh, getting invited to go to First of all, getting the opportunity to go to India and see the Himalayas uh, was was an opportunity of a lifetime. But to be invited by Royal Enfield um, to ride motorcycles in the Himalayan mountains was just I mean, it was it was awesome from beginning to end. It was it was awesome. And uh, for me, it was it was wonderful to see Carl there and for us to spend time hanging out together. Um, there was a. Uh, Good amount of time that we spent hanging out just talking about stuff not just motorcycle related but um music we both have a passion for music um carl's got a really interesting background on that front um regarding experiences that he had um 
playing the guitar and uh, just some really fun stuff that we shared about his background with music, my background with music. Um, I uh, shared with him that I played the violin for 13 years and started off when I was six playing the country fiddle, actually. Um, and when I was 10 years old, I had the opportunity to play at the Texas Opry, um, which was an experience in itself. But getting back to the motorcycle part of it, um, yeah, it, it was it was a it was a trip of a lifetime. The bikes were um, far, far more um, incredible uh, from what I even was expecting. Um, I, I own a 2022 Himalayan. So I, for me, it was, it was a really nice opportunity to compare, you know, the first generation Himalayan with the second generation bike. And I mean, aside from just a few little aesthetic pieces that, that crossed over from the first gen bike. I mean, the second gen bike is a qualitatively different bike altogether. And it was, um, it, it was a lot of fun. Um, I'll, I'll kind of segue into Carl sharing a little bit of his experiences and then, um, and if you want, we could talk a little bit about the bikes themselves. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I tend to agree, you know, I mean, uh, first off, it was awesome to meet Frank. Uh, I mean, you know, we talked about stuff, also Frank's martial arts and stuff. And, you know, Frank, one of these days, I don't know if you got a fiddle handy, but maybe you should play out an episode at the end. <laughs> yeah. with, with something and then just, you know, and maybe, just fade it off on the end. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, man, you know, I, I actually almost thought about that. My wife was funny enough, like earlier today, had pulled up a video that she had recorded of me playing Cotton Eye Joe about five years ago. Yes. I guess it was a Facebook memory from exactly five years ago today. And I had my fiddle out and I was playing Cotton Eye Joe. And uh, I almost thought about sharing that with you guys, but then I thought I thought second about it. But yeah, maybe uh, maybe I'll save that for for another visit. Uh, maybe I'll play like the Yellow Rose of Texas or something. Well, the devil uh, went down to Georgia. Devil went down to Georgia. I did, I did play that when I was ten at the Texas Opry, um, and I've still got the sheet music for it. Uh, I need to practice it a bit because, I mean, admittedly, I have not been playing the, the violin um, with any regularity over the last ten years like I used to, but. If you give me a little bit of time, I could probably I could probably get that one back again. Rush it up, you know. Pri, you know, Primus did a, did an amazing claymation of that song, also with fiddle. Did they? I don't know if you saw the video, yeah. No, I had no idea. You're gonna send send a link to that when we get done with the call. One hundred percent. Anyway, sorry, I digress. I kind <laughs> of sidetracked us there. Uh, I apologize, but yes. So, uh, so at, at the junket, it was awesome. Uh, you know, to meet Frank. Um, we we are both, of course, print publishers. So we were also able to share some war stories uh, about the miracle that is that is that is keeping a print publication uh, around and on newsstands these days. Uh, you know, uh, it's a tremendous challenge, to say the least. Um, but regarding the bike, um, you know, I think we both felt the same about, you know, not only this bike, uh, just in terms of the, you know, new, new Himalayan 450. I mean, it is. Uh, similar to the old one in name only and around headlight but besides that uh it's an all new machine and it's way more capable anyway i think a lot of people will have fun riding it but the main thing though is uh is is i think what we both feel is it, it's important for for people to have an opportunity in a market and it doesn't really matter if it's two wheels or four wheels or bicycles or anything it's it's important for people to have uh, you know, enough opportunity or product uh, availability and variety for them to be able to find something that they want, that they feel comfortable with, that doesn't have to break a bank. 
and 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 that that will help all of it grow. Yeah, the role infill to me is just a really interesting motorcycle. I ran into a guy in Galveston that had ridden all over the U.S. on um, his Himalayan and just was loving it. This was a couple of years ago. I think one thing that's interesting to talk about is shared adventure. Because, you know, Carl, we've talked about adventure and you did a lot of solo stuff. You run into people when you're in China. But how about the shared adventure that y'all got to experience together, you know, making a a friendship over motorcycles or just adventure and just talk about the importance of sharing that while you're on the road. Carl, we'll start with you and then go over to Frank. Yeah, well, okay. So, you know, I think one thing that's important to remember is this was a motorcycle junket. So it's all highly structured. And, you know, uh, I think it was what, 530 in the morning, Frank, was when we did like, like we had kickstands up around 5.30 or 6.30 or something in the morning. And then we'd get back around like 5 p.m. And the whole process is, sorry, go ahead. We started early. Yeah, I think we were, we were kickstands up at like 7 a.m. Uh, but we started, like, I think everybody started congregating about a good 45 minutes beforehand to grab some breakfast and then hop on the bikes. And then we were just kind of sitting around waiting for, for us to launch, I think right around 7 a.m. Yeah. It was an and, early start. And, and there were good-sized groups, too. They just didn't have like four or five bikes out there. There was dozens and dozens of bikes out there running multiple groups because it was global so you have you know us group you have europe group you have asia group right so on and so forth right so our day is highly structured and we get you know some time to share with each other mostly in the evenings right and then maybe at breaks you know what i mean but so, sometimes it's so short you don't even take your helmet off i mean frank what do you think about that oh yeah i mean yeah it, it was just it was very much like you described it um what I thought was really nice, and you mentioned um, that it was a it was a global media event. Um, so we had we had members of the media from all over the world. Um, most of the guys that we, that were in our group were the U.S. based group, um, and so we developed a camaraderie with with you know with particularly with the U.S. media members because the group that we were that we were riding with predominantly was U.S. folks, but. It was it was it was split up into a variety of groups based on really I think by region. Um, so you had folks from pretty much all of Europe. Um, you had um, Central and South America that were kind of grouped together. Um, I think that there were a few, if I recall, from were there any from Australia that you can recall? Uh, I think it was mostly Europe and then Central South America, uh, the U.S. Um, but uh, but yeah, well, there was a second group. There was a second group after our group. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We were we were in the first wave. So yeah, that's right. Yeah. I think there was at least two waves. So there were there were two waves, each wave with members of the media from global from regions. Yeah. Global regions. And then I think the third wave was 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 specifically India. It was an India wave. So for India, India media. Um, but it was very well organized. Um, it was very full days of riding with um you know, a couple opportunities to stop and take breaks, but the breaks were relatively short, as you indicated. Um, the lunch breaks were nice. The, the lunch that they served, uh, especially in the locations that they selected, was uh, fantastic. Um, Did y'all get to put the motorcycle through some different paces, like really push it from an off-road or just even on-road and cruising down the highway? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, for sure. I mean, we did 
a variety of stuff. I mean, you know, and they had an awesome photo crew and video crew there too, as well to show us some of the things. I mean, we only really had two, two or three days of riding. I think it was just two, two main days of riding. Um, and they were, they were all packed with a variety of stuff. And it was, uh, you know, you, you do get a chance to bond over that stuff because a lot of people that had been there had never ridden in Asia before. And the traffic in India is not like the traffic in Texas. <laughs> it, is a, it is a totally different ball of wax. And it's one of those things where, uh, where uh, you know, you have to learn how to deal with it because you can't, you know, and especially in junkets, journal journalists have a habit of getting competitive and stuff. And I, I said, man, if they do that here, someone's going to end up as a splatter on the front of a truck or lorry. Thankfully, no one did that. Uh, everybody kind of respected the fact that these are unpredictable traffic patterns. Um, and, you know, everybody made it out. And I was personally super happy with that. Um, you know, and I'd had some experience with Asian traffic before, so I understand. And for me, it's just take it easy and 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 ride with the flow. And here's the secret. You see how fast the locals are riding? Ride as fast as them. <laughs> how was that experience for you, Frank, with that truck? So, yeah, I think that was a really great segue there, Carl. Um, I, I So when I got back, I was sharing the experience with friends and family. And one of the things that I made it a point of basically starting the conversation was with that if you can ride or drive in India, I'm convinced you can ride or drive pretty much anywhere in the world. Um, it is an experience that I would kind of liken to like organized chaos where um you know, kind of think about like a bunch of fish, like a school of fish, like swimming in the, like swimming down a river and they're all just flowing with the water in this, you know, just going along with the flow of the water. That's kind of like how it is in India. Um, you've got cars, you've got trucks, you've got tuk-tuks, you've got motorcycles, you've got scooters, some of them five or six vehicles wide in a two-lane road, all weaving in between each other. Horns are constantly going off, and which I also found particularly interesting as well regarding the horns in, in India, especially when people are honking their horns because their the horns are going off constantly. They're not honking at people the way that they are here in the U.S. And here in the U.S., somebody honks at you is usually because you cut them off or you've done something, and it's a way of kind of just saying like you know, "f you," whatever. In India, it's completely different, and it, it, it's it's truly a way of communicating to people what it is that their intent is. So. If you're looking to move over to the right lane or you're looking to move over to the left or whatever, people are honking and communicating that way to let you know what their intent is. And, and it all just kind of flows. And so, like I said, you might have five or six vehicles wide in a two-lane road, but everybody just kind of knows what to do. It's 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 an organized chaos. And and so I found that experience to be it was it was, it was I was kind of like thrown into thrown into it like feet first or head first, uh, dive, diving into this experience and just like learning to do it. You had to learn to do it on the spot. Um, so that was a really unique component to, to the writing experience in India. But then there's some other variables you got to add to that. So not only are you dealing with, you know, this, this organized chaos of traffic, but in India, as you probably know, cows are sacred. And so if you're a cow and you're in India, you pretty much get to do whatever the heck you want to do. Um, if you want to cross the street, traffic yields to you. If you want to take a nap and stop in the middle of the road, traffic yields to you. If 
you're a pair of cows and you want to, you know, you want to mate, you know, and you want to do it in the middle of the road. There's no time like the present. There's no time like the <laughs> present. Exactly. Everybody yields to cows in India. And I found that to be particularly illuminating and, and I respected it. I really thought it was a, a really wonderful component to the experience. Um, but it, it was an additional variable because you could be flying down the road on a motorcycle. Like Carl said, you know, you, you, you need to go, you basically go the speed of, of what, of what, of what everybody else is going. So if others are going, you know, 80 kilometers an hour, which is what roughly, I don't know, 50 miles an hour, um, you're going the same speed. And when you're going around curves, oh, that's another thing too, speaking of the variables. So paved roads are a combination of paved and dirt, really. Um, you'll be going on a paved road and then all of a sudden you'll come across a section where the road just stops and it becomes dirt, it becomes rocks. It becomes Totally, dirt. totally bombed out. It's a bombed totally, out road. Totally yeah, bombed out. <laughs> exactly. And then you'll get to the other side of it and it's paved again. But then on top of that, so you're dealing with paved slash unpaved roads, but then you're also navigating along hairpin curves. So a curve will show up and you'll be going around the curve. And then right as you're going around the curve, there might be a cow right there. There might be half a dozen people crossing the road. And then there might be another hairpin curve going in the opposite direction. And then that's followed by like the world's longest tunnel. I think it was, the, I forgot the name of the tunnel that we navigated through, but I want to say it was like, what was it like 10 to 12 miles long, Carl? It was equivalent to that. So no, it was like 11 kilometers, I think. Okay. Yeah. So like six, maybe six miles or so. Well, that's still a lot of tunnel digging. It's a lot of tunnel. And yeah, so it, it was just a very unique, completely different experience of being here in the US. Oh, and one other thing too, in India, you're, you're riding and driving on the left side of the road rather than here in the US where you're on the right side. So it was literally trial by fire for those of us who didn't have that experience before. And Carl, fortunately, had you know, has had you know he lived he lived in Asia for five years, and so he knows what what that experience is like. But for me, doing it for the first time, um, yeah, it was trial by fire, and you're basically just learning on the go, navigating on the go, and then hoping that you know you end the day the way that you began it, which is in one piece. <laughs> it sounds a little stressful. <laughs> it, initially, it was, but honestly, you. You learn really quickly. Right, about, once you got the flow. Yeah, once you got the flow. And then once you've got it figured out, it's just a matter of just of just doing it. And when you're on a motorcycle too, I mean you're you're all you're 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 always keenly aware and I would say even hypersensitive to what's going around you, particularly when you're on a motorcycle, because you've really got to be aware of of everything that's going on around you because you know you're much more exposed on two wheels. And you know, particularly when you're riding in a different country where the, the rules of the of the road are are different than they are from your home country. Um, you're just hypersensitive and hyper aware to everything that's going on around you. And and so because of that, you know, I would say, you know, there was an element of stress, I guess, but there was also an exhilarating component to it as well. I mean, you're it, it, it's it's kind of a feeling of which you can't really liken to because it's um you're you're just so keenly aware of what's going on around you that it's it's exhilarating there's it's 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 exciting um it's scary as hell it's right. um, but it's fun and it, that that's what i think made it such a unique experience we were talking a little bit before we jumped on just about 
um, Carl was talking about just the whole experience of riding a motorcycle and the amount of things that you have to pay attention to that if a person's never ridden a motorcycle, they don't understand that experience of using both feet, both hands all at the same time, and then having to be very aware of your surroundings. And, you know, when you get off a motorcycle after a day of riding, you are worn out. (laughs) Yeah. It is a it is a tough day. And that doesn't matter if you've been riding pavement all day, gravel, doesn't matter what what it is, you are worn out because of your always be you have to be on a hundred percent. Yeah. And and you know, those uh those those habits of being hyper aware that Frank was talking about, those are good to bring back. You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. I think a lot of accidents here happen, you know, and they say, you know, most accidents happen close to home. And the reason why is because we stop paying attention because we're so habituated mm-hmm. to, you know, to, you know, oh, there's a stop sign and someone's going to stop there. The fact is, someone doesn't always stop there. Maybe 99 times out of 100 or, or 999 times out of 1,000, someone will stop there. But, being, but being, in the, being in the habit of being constantly aware of what's going on around you is always good to have. Whether you're walking around on a street or you're riding a motorcycle, or you're driving a car, you know, learning to turn up your awareness is a good survival skill that I think a lot of people tend to forget, yeah. especially once they isolate themselves. So, Carl, before we close up on this conversation, I am interested in some of these musical backgrounds you have. And the reason being because you were telling me about an interview that you had done with a very famous guitar uh, player before we even got on uh, this screen. So, what what is your musical background that you have there? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, uh, so, you know, like I grew up just like a lot of other people, parents made me learn how to play piano. I didn't appreciate it at the time, you know, like the knowledge that I was getting. Right. right. But I think what Frank was talking to or, or talking about was uh, was some of the amazing musical experiences I had while I was also overseas in China. So in my early 20s and late teens, I, you know, I would play open mic nights and stuff, you know, like with my guitar, you know, covered a lot of the stuff i tried to write my own songs played with the harmonics and all that other kinds of stuff also learned you know a little bit of bass and i can i can do some c jam blues on the keyboard (laughs) it's real rusty but it's in me somewhere um but uh but what i was telling uh you know frank about was um i was i was uh i was fortunate enough to have some very close friends in china um, Josh and Heather, and they had a band in China called Proximity Butterfly, and they were a rock band, kind of like Jane's Addiction, and and some other kind of rock going on there. And they toured around. They were they were one of the few foreigner bands in in China, and the scene in Chengdu, which is the capital of the Sichuan province, uh, for music was amazing. I mean, there was these there was these bars where we would meet a couple times a week, and you would just have people from all over the world. We had. Tibetan rappers, Nigerian rappers, German bassists, uh, 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 French DJs. Uh, I mean, you just name it. And they would all just kind of filter through there. And it was kind of, you know, so like a jazz band changes members all the time. It was kind of like that. And the, the eclectic nature of the music that, you know, I felt I was exposed to and the musical genius that came through there, I felt really had a lasting impact on, on, on my life and my appreciation for music, not, not even necessarily as a music player, but also as a listener. Um, you know, I mean, I was telling Frank, there was this one night 
um, and I'll try to keep this short. I was telling there's this one night where we're all hanging out, playing outside in the center fire pit kind of thing. Bass is going. There's a guy on a, on a small drum kit and the electric guitar, acoustic guitar. We got someone rapping, and then passed off someone singing. And this old ball guy comes up. He was this little, I mean, he was definitely older. I'd say maybe he was mid, mid to late 60s. Comes up out of nowhere in the city, you know, <laughs> Southwest China. And he just picks up this like small drum. It wasn't, I don't remember if it was bongos, but it was like a clay, clay drum. And I guess those, those wouldn't be bongos. But the dude just sits down and he starts playing some real basic sounds. And the music starts jamming. And this dude's eyes just start rolling into the back of his head. And his fingers start going so fast, you can't even hear it. He's like, and I mean, it was a blur of fingers and sound. And this guy was almost in like a musical trance. And we found out later that he comes from like four or five generations of Eastern European drum makers. And, you know, he's had drum and percussion and rhythm in his family for, you know, hundreds. Yeah. Generations, generations. And so he probably just heard music and he was like, I need to get in on some of that. Right. And, and so that's like, that's the musical community. And I think Frank and I bonded, bonded a lot over that, which is, you know, and this might be a really cool discussion for another adventure topic, which is music on the road. Uh, I can see a whole nother podcast. Yeah. But I, I think what's, you know, important is we've talked about today is even though you're a moto magazine what we've talked about is adventure and that definition is broad and it's good that it's broad because what we're wanting listeners to do is just go find some adventure it may be on your bike your motorcycle maybe on your car or it may be that you're just going to run today but i think that's so important is that is that we talk about adventure and getting out of our comfort zone a little bit we talked about that peaks and valleys the rewards of getting out of that comfort zone and doing that. And I think that's the key to today's conversation is, is, you know, you have a really cool story, Carl, of where you chase that adventure early in your life. And then it got, and that was your passion. It's got to become your career as well. And I think that's a really great place to be in. You know, Frank is a publisher of Outdoor by Fours, really, you know, wants to be part of the adventure as well. And that's really deep into him, this whole adventure lifestyle and y'all both get to really pursue that through building incredible magazines and providing content. But the goal in both cases is how do we get folks to start pursuing their own adventure? And I think that's what we take away. And it doesn't have to be on two wheels, four wheels. It can be on anything. It can be solo. It can be shared. I, I enjoy the shared experiences myself. But um, this has been a really good conversation. Awesome. Yeah, man. Daniel, thank you very much. You know. You know, for me, it's largely, you know, seek new experiences because because they're healthy for you right. most of the time. And finally, be your own life. Carl, if, if folks want to learn more about your magazine, where do they go to find that? Oh, uh, well, I mean, you can just go to adventuremotorcycle.com. Uh, you know, and, and there's, and there's all kinds of stuff there. We also have a YouTube channel. Uh, almost all of our social media is at ADV Moto Mag. Um, you know, and we are constantly posting stuff up there too as well. Um, but print online, we also have a digital version, you know, it's all up on there and we want to hear from, from, from readers, even if you're not a subscriber or whatever, let us know what you would like to see. Let us know what your idea of, of adventure is, or even if you just send us an email, uh, you know, saying, you know what, this was a transformative time in my life, or 
hey, you know, I'm trying to find something. What's right for me? Send it. We do our best to answer everybody. It doesn't matter who you are, where you come from. Awesome. Well, Frank and Carl, I appreciate the time today. This has been a wonderful conversation. Frank, I'm glad you got to come in and provide some of that insight on that trip. I think that was important as well. Um, so just thanks to both of you guys for jumping on. I really appreciate it. No, thanks for hosting us, Daniel. This is this is this has been great. Yeah, it's absolute pleasure. Thanks a ton. And Carl, it was a pleasure seeing you again. I'm looking forward to doing it again soon. Yeah, man. We'll hook up offline, okay? You bet. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Sign Out Podcast. Make sure you check out AdventureMotorcycle.com. You can find all of their social media from there. Special thanks to Four Wheel Pop-Up Campers, purveyors of vehicle-based adventure, for their generous support of the Sign Out Podcast. Learn more about Four Wheel Pop-Up Campers and their variety of base camp adventure products by visiting 4WH.com. That's F-O-U-R-W-H.com. Make sure you check out our website at signoutco.com. We have a bunch of original design t-shirts and hats and stickers. They're very cool. Check them out. And if you have about 30 seconds, if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, that would be much appreciated. It really helps us out. The music in this episode was made by me, Caleb J. Murphy. And if you want to hear more of my music, check out calebjmurphy.com. Again, thank you for listening to the Sign Out Podcast. And we will talk to you next time. The Sign Out Podcast is proudly brought to you by Outdoor by Four Magazine, a preeminent publication for responsible vehicle-based adventure travel, including overlanding. Outdoor by Four shares family-friendly content that resonates with a broad audience of adventurers, whether in a 4x4 vehicle, on two wheels, in a canoe or kayak, or on foot. Outdoor by 4's focus is on visual storytelling that appeals to all types of outdoor enthusiasts while providing expert advice as well as dynamic photography and stories that inspire. You can pick up a copy of Outdoor by 4 magazine by visiting your local bookstore or by going to OutdoorX4.com. That's OutdoorX, the number 4, dot com.